Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Sherry Sidoti. She is an author and the founder and lead director of Fly Yoga School, a yoga teacher training program, and Fly Outreach, a not-for-profit that offers yoga and meditation for trauma recovery on Martha's Vineyard. A certified labor doula, addiction recovery coach, and somatic attachment therapy program graduate, she leads spiritual courses, teacher training, and retreats globally. Her musings, infused by 20 years of practicing and teaching yoga, healing arts, and mysticism, have been published by the Martha's Vineyard Times, Heart and Soul Magazine, Elephant Journal, and Anthropology and Humanism Quarterly. Her essay, Mosaics, is featured in the 2022 She Writes Anthology, Art in Times of Unbearable Crisis. Sherry is most devoted to her greatest teacher, her son, Miles, whose love, sensitivity, humor, and wisdom illuminate her path. A Smoke and a Song is Sherry's first book, and she currently resides on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Ronit. It's such an honor to be here. It really is very meaningful to me. I just want to let you know that a few months before my memoir was published, I stumbled upon this podcast and religiously listened to every single episode as it was really supporting my journey into being a published memoirist. And, you know, all the things that come along with that, all the, oh gosh, you know, the the nervousness and the vulnerability hangover and all of those (laughs) things. And Listening to your podcast on a daily basis really guided me through a very challenging period of time in my life. So it's such an honor to be here. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. I just, this is such a beautiful thing to know. I have said this before, but you you do your thing, you write your thing, you create your stuff, you move through the world, like following this little star that you found, right? And then it's such a beautiful, beautiful full circle feeling when someone like you just now tells me that this affected you or, or made a difference. Uh, it really did. Yes. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. I want to talk about so much in your book. There's The book was so engaging to read and I just was like, oh, I'm crawling into your life here. This is, you You show so much of the different parts of your, your experience. And can you share a little bit for anyone who hasn't seen your book yet, A Smoke and a Song, just an overview of what your memoir deals with. Yeah, absolutely. So A Smoke and a Song, the book begins, it's the height of the pandemic. I'm 50 years old. I'm going through some huge personal, not to mention global transformations and transitions. And like most of the world, I'm taking inventory, right? I had just mm-hmm. moved out of my home. I've become an empty nester. I was going through menopause. You know, so much is mm-hmm. happening. And amid all of these huge life transformations, I learned that my mother has terminal cancer. Mm. And so I'm at this cusp of of a new life blooming because I've just gotten engaged and I'm moving and building a home from the ground up with my new fiance. And at the same time, I'm contending with pre-grieving and the loss of Mm. my mother is looming. So I find myself on a quest to, to go into these memories that I feel live deep in and are homed in my body. Mm. And so my story travels along many twists and turns from childhood to the present day of when I was writing it. And really it's a reckoning with the complexities of 
inherited and transgenerational trauma, some relational dynamics, particularly some that may be considered dysfunctional in the family, mm -hmm. a deep inner longing and loneliness and loss. And it's kind of my story of tumbling and stumbling toward healing, belonging, wholeness, and despite it all, love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've set it up into three sections, which um, I appreciated because it, they're sort of three discrete sections. But of course, because it's your life, they all inform one another. And it's it's also, I get the sense of who you are now and who you must be to your students and the people who know you well over these last decades where you've been living and, and sort of the, the mastery you've gotten over your, your practices, your various practices that you teach is so different from the young you that we get to meet in a smoke and a song and that's part of what I love about memoir I mean there's so much I love about it and what I appreciate about your book is that I know that where you're gonna end up is so different from where you started and yet who you were as the small sherry the small child really helped lay the groundwork for who you became yes absolutely and and I think that that you spoke really to kind of my sentiment and my intention and hopes in writing my story is that, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to demonstrate and take along, take the reader along with me is that healing is a bit by bit journey. And we all come from complex family dynamics and we've all had our share of pain and disappointments and losses. And yet, we make our way through and we go on this journey. For me, it was very specifically healing journey through some of the practices. And I wanted in writing the story, I wanted it to be from the learner's perspective or mm -hmm. from me as I did go along and kind of find my way along my path instead of sounding like a teacher, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. It mm -hmm. just was really important for me to dive back into my own experience experiences mm. from that perspective of, of, of learning as I go. Because I think sometimes we can, you know, impose this understanding on someone, say, a yoga teacher or someone who's in the healing arts that, you know, I have it all figured out, mm -hmm. <laughs> or that I'm not still on my journey. And both are untrue. I really have, don't have it figured out. I'm still healing. I'm still in that process. I will mm -hmm. be. It's just lifelong. And I wanted to kind of debunk that notion that some people are more together than others or some people have it figured out and mm -hmm. other people have to seek their help to figure it out. I feel like we all have the capacity and kind of the birthright to heal. And so it was very important for me to show my process learning it as I go and not what I know now looking mm -hmm. back and being able to, you know, be the master of any of anything. <laughs> mm, yeah, well, it's like you as the baby teacher, right? When, yes. What was the baby teacher like? And then also this vulnerability, which when in doing that, it is a vulnerability for sure, to be able to reveal how you tried to find the things you needed when you were younger, and then how you find them now. And on a craft level, I'm curious about, I would love you to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about any or all of these, which is when did you actually start writing or know that you wanted to write it? And 
when did you decide to use present tense for the majority of the book? And how did you know you had three distinct sections? Love the, love all three questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't set out to write a book necessarily. I had been, I was taking a little sabbatical from teaching and I decided that I had spent most of my adult life, well, and child life as well, but being of service to others. And I really wanted to just give myself some time to give myself permission really to make art and do something different. So when I started writing, I did not set out to write a book. And I was writing stories. They were kind of complete stories. And I really was following the flow of what stories wanted to be written through me. But what I was finding in writing a complete story is that it had, you know, the beginning, the middle, and the end with the understanding and the anecdotal stuff and all the meaning making from my perspective now. Mm -hmm. And so I was just continuing along that journey, but about six or seven months into it, I started to pull out and look at some of the connective tissue that was showing up in my stories, which was a lot about the grandmother, mother, daughter lineage and some of the transgenerational stuff was showing up in all of my pieces as well as my own traumas and pain points and how I learned to kind of recover or rehab from my life experiences. And with some of that connective tissue, I thought, mm, maybe if these weren't separate stories, but I started to kind of detangle them mm. and, and rip out the anecdotes or comb them through that I could weave these stories together and write a book. So it happened a little bit organically, I would say, and that led me to writing in the present tense. Mm -hmm. So as I started to deconstruct the stories and just pull out the experiences and let go of all the like, this is what it means today, mm -hmm. I, I would, for my writing process, I would go back into the memory and I would use some of my, my yoga, my meditation, some of my other somatic practices that I've embodied to go into my writing space and when i would go into the writing space the stories would would be would be there for me in present tense so when i would come out of the meditation and start to write i wrote in present tense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so and it started to feel more like oh this is what i want to do i don't really want to write in past tense with what i know now but I want to demonstrate and carry the reader along the ride with me, along the journey with me. And it just made sense to keep it in present tense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then did you have any trouble like at all managing timelines or trying to delineate when, ha when what happened because you were in present tense? Did it ever trip you up at all or trip up your editor? Yes, often. <laughs> <laughs> and there were the editing was, you know, I mean, but I can't even count how many dozens of, you know, times I went through the entire manuscript and kept pulling things out, kept de deconstructing and combing some of the things that were uh, kind of hiding in there that had that I was like, mm, I don't think that that really I really would have thought that or felt that at that mm -hmm. age. So I kept having to comb it through. And in that kind of combing out and leaving just what was present at each age, I um, was able to get like almost the entire third section because all that stuff went into ah. that final section. And I didn't, at the beginning, I really didn't have three parts. 
but I had, you know, at first I had like nine parts, <laughs> then, it oh, was, wow. then it was one part with a million chapters. I mean, mm -hmm. there are so many iterations of the book, but what ended up happening is that I kind of ended up coming into this place where I wanted the, I wanted the material to be digestible. So mm -hmm. because some of the material is challenging or potentially triggering for me and maybe even the reader, I needed to simplify and condense and make it more digestible. So I wanted it to be more of bite sizes as opposed to one huge chunk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, when I was, when it came down to like the final edits and I was really considering the structure of it, some of the longer stories I tweezed and made them shorter, either by making them multiple different chapters or just removing some of the material. And on a craft sense, I kept going back to the beginning, those earlier stories from my life, my early childhood, my early adulthood, and realized that at one point in one of the stories that hopefully your listeners will, our listeners will read, that is based on the Mayan priestess Ishel that I learned about during my early 20s when I was living in Mexico. That Ishel kind of showed face in the form of the three faces of women, maiden, mm -hmm. mother, and crone. And it just started to resonate that I was kind of doing the same, that I was seeing my life as like in my early maidenhood years. And then there was this whole chunk of like, motherhood. And then now I'm entering my cronehood. So internally, I structured it that way, although I don't name that in the book. Yeah, right, right, right. And it, I just realized it now when you said it. Yeah, I had I mean, of course, that's really present. And this is a, a great segue into the relationship you cover here between your mother and your grandmother, because they're both such powerful forces. And you you relate these stories in nuanced, multifaceted ways, you know, their backgrounds, what made them become the way they are, how you felt about them over time, too. And the way that maybe you were torn about the different levels of closeness you had with them at different times. So wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you achieved this view of them and how conscious you were to do this as you worked on the manuscript. Mm. Well, I think that in order to under I've, I've deep down inside, I've known this even as a child, I think because I was a very serious child and um, spent a lot of time in my own self, kind of looking at these fierce women in my life and mm -hmm. trying to find my place within the, within all of these women. Right, because you also have two older sisters who were a force as well. Exactly. So I was, you know, very, I was buoyed in a lot of ways, but also very burdened by coming from this family of so many women that were really strong, really dynamic characters. And so I think I've always known that in order to really know who I am, and, and then especially as an author, in order to tell my story, I really needed to deeply understand the women I come from. The, the grandmother, mother, daughter, even sister dynamic has always been intriguing to me because there was love, of course, a lot of it, and there was a lot of strength, but there was also a lot of turmoil, 
a lot of dysfunction, a lot of insecure, what I would call insecure attachments. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think I've been very cognizant of their wounds and their wisdom and what I inherited and will perpetuate if I don't pay attention to it and do something about it. And some Mm -hmm. of those things I gladly inherit. And some of those things I have had to make the conscious choice that not only do I not want to perpetuate, but I certainly don't want to pass down to my son and future generations. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that was subconsciously my initial thrust in like really exploring the dynamics between me and my grandmother, me and my mother and my mother and my grandmother and my sisters and I all these all, all these fierce women it's a yeah. lot of it's a lot of energy you know even our cats were girls i mean we, it was just you know a whole well, it goes a, it goes a long way too because what i really appreciate about this is among the many things i appreciate is that you're able to see the way that your mom grew up and and the way your grandmother treated her as well as the way that your grandmother treated you and how different it was and how you knew this but you still loved your grandmother so much even though it seems like your mother and her just were never able to, without giving too much away, bridge or they didn't get what they needed, especially it seems like your mom did not ever get what she would have needed from your grandmother, even though your grandmother gave you so much of what you needed. Yes. And and that was confusing to me as a child because I saw it play out in front of me. Like, how can grandma be so kind and funny and affectionate with me and yet not with my mother, so cold and cruel in some ways to my mom, but I didn't yet know their story, but I could see it play out. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking myself, like, I wonder if love skips a generation because I felt similarly, I I knew my mother loved me and she and I had this very close relationship, but almost in reverse, like I was the mother, she was the daughter Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I knew that our relationship was, there was tension there and it was complex for me to live, as, especially as a child. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I learned my mother's backstory. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I had so much compassion and sympathy for my mom that it almost made me, it could have made me kind of turn on my grandmother, but I really rested in the the place that we, she and I were so close. And my grandmother gave me, she reflected back to me parts of myself that nobody else did, that I wasn't willing to live without. Mm-hmm. And then also that's your mom was generous enough in that sense to not bar you from that relationship. She knew that you needed it as well. Yes, absolutely. And she encouraged it. Like she, she encouraged me spending time with my grandmother. And I think in some ways, It was healing for her to see my grandmother be so kind and affectionate and funny with me, even if she couldn't do that with her. I think as a mother, we forgive our mothers when we see how they are with our children, if that relationship is nurturing and healthy. And Mm -hmm. I could see Mm -hmm. that my mom, you know, I've had many conversations with my mom about it since, and she's always said, I never wanted to get in the way of that. It was healthy for me to see her be a nurturing force because I never got that in Mm. our mother-daughter dynamic. So that was something that was, I think, important. It's an important teaching that I took along the way and even have applied to my dynamic with my mother, even though my mother and I are very close, 
there have been really, there's a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's complex. Mm -hmm. Um, but to see how she is with my son has also healed a lot for me. So I understand where my mom was coming from. Mm -hmm. My grandmother didn't have her mother. Her mother passed away when she was very young. And so that was another thing. I also was able to understand and forgive her for that. Like she didn't learn how to mother because she didn't have one. Mm -hmm. And so I could, I could kind of understand or at least give her some passes for yeah. her lack of mothering my mother well. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so many, so many broken backstories and people and in ways that we get hurt living and becoming the people we're going to become, especially, I mean, I guess it happens all the time, but I, I know this, this generation so much went unsaid and the generation you're talking about, the pain or the traumatic events that happened to great grandparents and grandparents that really never got to get excavated at all. Exactly. Like we talk about these things now, yeah. you know, even something as simple as having some mental health challenges. We're talking about these things now. These weren't talked about then. There was a lot more shame wrapped around some of the issues that we women contend with, that mm -hmm. some of these stories that live in our bodies that we can share now a little yes. bit more openly. And even now it feels vulnerable and scary. Mm -hmm. And I have to work with the shame that comes up. But think about a few generations ago, these things really weren't discussed or openly. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not that, they, that there weren't people who were able to work with them and, ha and communicate about them. But when I think about my grandmother, I think about what she was handed. While she was very revolutionary in some ways, she also came from an era where certain things just weren't talked about. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think there's still people who choose not to. But I do see that movement, and especially in the circles that you travel and the circles that I travel. This is what we do, right? Tell me more. Let me learn more about you. What what happened? You can be safe here. That That is kind of where we, I think, do the best work. Do you want to read that excerpt that I sent you? Does that seem like a good section to read I would love you to and you can set it up if you want I mean it's really early in the book so you can talk about how old you are or anything you want to add to it okay sure so this is comes from one of the first chapters called worn souls s-o-l-e-s -E and I'm 10 in this story and because I'm writing in present tense I'm doing my best to write from that perspective of what I was feeling and seeing and kind of breathing at that moment I'll I'll, I'll read from just from the bottom of the second page, so just a little overview. My, I'm in, I'm, I'm in our loft in New York City where I grew up, and I'm doing my homework, and my mom kind of barges in the door, as she does on a nightly basis. And just immediately, the moment she's, you know, she walks in the door, there's just, you know, my sisters <laughs> and I are, all three of the girls are there. We're probably not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And my mom has probably just gotten home from a long day of work and she just kind of loses it. <laughs> and that was our, our, our nightly <laughs> occurrence. It was a, a very common, this was a common evening in our home. So I'll just pick up from there. Okay. The second she's home, she's on edge, high strung, agitated, dodgy like a chihuahua small and non-intimidating, but with a loud bark. I can't understand why mom instigates arguments, especially as soon as she walks in the door, and even more so 
because she always loses them. Who in their right mind would choose to start their nights like this every night? A simple, how was your day, first, could go a long way. But not mom. Nope. Always. God damn it, girls. My sisters are quick to fight back. Words waiting on the tip of their tongue, already formed into spiteful sentences. Lisa, the oldest, speaks up first. Well, if you had one motherly bone in your body to actually cook us a meal ever, maybe we would have a reason to clear the table. Maddie, the middle, says, do it yourself. I'm your daughter, not your maid. I, the baby of the trio, close my eyes and squeeze in while mom and my sisters yell at each other some more and more and more. Mom walks to the kitchen to make her coffee. Coffee is always the second thing she does after getting home. I make a habit of preparing it for her before she gets here. I grab her favorite mug from the cabinet, the white supersized one with elephants walking in a ring around the rim, one trunk stuck into the butt of the next coffee cup porno. I put the mug on the orange Formica counter. I take out the brown bag from Puerto Rico imports from the refrigerator, grind the beans and pour the soil smelling grounds into the paper filter. So all mom has to do is boil some water, pour it over and take a sip. A small gesture, it's always worth the try. My attempt to prevent a full out war between her and my sisters. Because well, Mom always seems to shift for the better with a cup of coffee in hand. Mom takes a big gulp of steamy brew and says, ah, thank God for you, and scurries to the back of the loft to hide in her room. I'm not sure if she is referring to me or the coffee, but either way it works, so I let it be. She's fucking nuts, Lisa says. The lady is sick. I just can't with her and her hyperactive ways. Maddie chimes in. I know, she's psychotic. I join in with Lisa and Maddie to poke fun at our mom behind her back. Yeah, yeah, she's crazy. Poking fun at mom is our connective tissue, the same skin wrapped around our shared sisterly skeletons. They joke about needing to lock her up in a loony bin. I laugh, but in my belly, I feel the truth in my sister's claims. Something is certainly off with our mother. I feel sorry for mom. We are three against one, and she is so skinny. She has little help with us, no husband to speak of, no child support with money or otherwise, and we are a handful. And mom has zero control. Lisa smokes pot in the playroom and Maddie sneaks out to parties. We are more like the four horsemen of the apocalypse than we are family, New Testament style. Sword, famine, wild beast, plague. Each of us on our own mission to somehow survive the palpable angst that lives within the four walls of our loft. A mom and her three daughters, two already bleeding, and the third, me, on the verge of filling a training bra, all under one tin-tiled ceiling. This loft is drenched in female pheromones, Mom often says. It's just too much estrogen for one home. And she's right. 
Even our cat Bree is a girl. As a matter of fact, there hasn't been a boy born in our family since Grandpa Stanley, and he's almost 80 years old. My mom is one of those fiercely independent New York City broads. Our friends call her fly, and adults call her dynamic and magnetic. Mom buzzes like a bee, she rarely eats, she barely sleeps, and she is wired with both arms raised in the air. When we were babies, she raised her voice for women's liberation and raised her fist for the Black Panthers. Now, she raises us on occasional food stamps and a whole lot of adrenaline. She's always on offense for the next thing to fight for, with, or at. She must have passed the gusto to us through her breast milk because the three of us are stubborn, strong-willed, and defiant. We love hard. We do. But we fight even harder. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, man. I just, that agitation of a parent, the, the like coming in and just kind of disrupting the environment. I, I know this from my own childhood, the, where, where you're doing your thing and then there's something you just can't seem to calm in, in the, the adult who's taking care of you. I get it. Yes. Um, yes. I'm sorry. Know, yeah, no, I mean, I was like, oh my gosh. And I, and I couldn't believe how your sisters talked back to her too in the beginning. I just couldn't believe it. I felt so bad for pretty much everyone. This is such a charged environment growing up, and you capture it vividly throughout the book. And I'm wondering what it was like for you to engage in that material simply because you're in such a different place now. So how was it for you to go to those places that you needed to 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 write this account? Mm. Well, I would say I have come a long way, and we all have, but it's right there. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't that challenging to access. I mean, I think the details were, and returning was certainly, could, could, there were moments where it was certainly triggering. But I think it's kind of this balance of knowing how far we've all come, despite all of the, you know, chaos and fighting and other things, we also share a lot of love and we've consistently stayed bonded and been significant people in each other's lives. And we've all evolved as adults to better places, I would say, that we were in, say, a moment like I just read. Hmm. We're not perfect, and we can still snap back into that heightened and triggered place, but we really have come a long way. Um, So I think that it was, for me personally, it was really important for me to continue all my practices, my trauma-resilient practices, my meditation, my yoga, mainly the physical movement, going out in nature. There were a lot of practices that I tried to embody and weave into the writing practice as well because I needed it. And I didn't do the best job. Like I think next time around, it was my first time writing a book and certainly writing some of these charged memories. Some of the Mm -hmm. memories I probably hadn't thought about in years, but you know, when you go into that writing space, things that want to be, stories that want to be told, they rise to the surface. Mm -hmm. So I have new, a new sense of how I would go about it the next time. I did my very best to go into my memories, to really be there in present tense, and then on the way out to recalibrate and work with my body to release some of that tension and trigger that shows up when you're returning to memory. 
If you were hitting a, a point of that was particularly fraught for you, did you let up a little bit and give yourself a break? Or how did you, because I, I'm someone who doesn't really engage with my body as much as maybe some other people who work in, in these modalities like you do. I mean, I do some of what you do in terms of I take yoga, but not like you. And I'm not one to quickly realize, oh, I'm super tense right now. Or, oh, I've been clutching, like grinding my teeth for the past five minutes. I don't, it takes me a minute to realize that stuff. And so I'm curious when people, because you do discover quite a bit in this memoir about your own, what you went through with men and the different experiences you had. And I wonder if you gave yourself a break in those cases or did you push on? I think I pushed on, which is something that I would do differently the next time. It was interesting because the the charged place in the writing came also with so much exhilaration in the writing process and practice for me because I had so, so many creative surges that I hadn't really experienced or at least not experienced as a writer before. And, you know, I went into this kind of as a novice writer. And so... I think I was riding kind of that wave of exhilaration mm-hmm. as well. And so I maybe lost sight of my own body during some of the writing moments. I also was writing in the middle of the night, like I was waking up at three in the morning. <laughs> is that thank you, menopause? Yes, uh, thank you, that... <laughs> menopause. Exactly. Thank you, menopause. I was waking up in the sweat at three in the morning. And so I would grab my, instead of lying in bed and being frustrated, I was feeling very creative. And that's when these stories were kind of coming forward during that like liminal middle of the night space. So I would bundle up or depending on the season, but during the winter bundle up and sit outside and write. So there was some self-care element to it just because I was outdoors and I live in a rural place and there were all the sounds of nature and so I think I, my nervous system was able to stay mm. somewhat balanced and harmonized. Yeah, sort of a grounding, maybe presence just sort of a bit available to you around in your environment. Yeah, yeah. Right, I, right. So I, you know, I think next time around, I would do things a little bit with a little with a lot more self-care practices and also life care practices. When I was writing I was on hiatus from teaching and I also it was also during the pandemic for a big chunk of it. So there wasn't a whole lot else happening. And I definitely dove in deep and spent a lot of hours writing a day for a long period of time that can put stress on other elements of other parts of your life, relationships and just yeah, kind of the basic yeah, the basic tasking. I started writing right at the time that my now husband and I were moving in together for the first time. We hadn't never lived together. So that was stressful. Yeah, on I us. can imagine. Yeah, was- well, if you're doing all of that exploring and feeling and thinking and ruminating, and then you also have to give energy to this relationship that's trying to grow. Yeah, yes. That's and tough. It, really tough. And, you know, he and I are, are, really working with the aftermath of that now like it's something that we openly can communicate on and understand but we were both going into this he as my partner and me as the writer completely blindly and so we didn't we didn't 
have anything set up to say, okay, these are the boundaries. You can only write for yeah. six hours a day, not 17. Or, you know, <laughs> come things, back to me. Yeah, Where'd come back go? to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a way, he became a golf widower or, you <laughs> yeah. know, the, the author version of it. And, I could just imagine, like, do not begin or move in with your, like, lover or your partner when you're beginning work on a no. memoir, everyone. Like, yeah. they'll be so, like, wait a minute, I did not sign up for this. Yeah, suggestion number one. And the fact <laughs> that we actually, like, work through it and are where we are now is a beautiful testament to the amount of work that he and I are willing to do together because it's not just the fact that I kind of dove in headfirst to this book writing and really devoted myself to it for a few years, but also the material itself was very triggering and I have had to kind of like reprocess a lot of my life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's been intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really like, I mean, he's going to get the whole, the whole Sherry, like all <laughs> right. Like not the, no more masks. Cause you're really kind of sifting through all the things and, and understanding what happened in your family with someone who's fairly new to your yeah. life. Right. Yes. It hasn't been easy, but it's been worthy. It's been a really worthy process that we've done together. And in some ways it's encouraged him to do his own version of that for his own life. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I had this like very dark thought, like what if he's like, I'm writing a memoir and then he goes, he goes into <laughs> memoir land for his next three years. Like, no. and then you have to deal. No, 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 <laughs> please don't. Only one memoirist at a time. Yeah. So what about your sisters? I'm curious what, what it was like for them. These sisters of yours are so integral to your story and we get to know them a little bit in the book. So is there anything you'd like to share about how they reacted to the book or what it was like for you to share your story or even if there's any navigation needed to cope with the legacy of the way you grew up, you know, how, how are you three now? Yeah, really important questions to ask because, well, I'll, I think I'll like to start with where your last question, which is where we are now. And we're in a really communicative and wonderful and not always easy place just in life in general because my mother is still alive she's really gone way past her original prognosis mm -hmm. and but I would say the past three years have really the three of us have really had to become a team and divide and conquer to support one another as well as deal with what we're dealing with with our mother being at the end of her life so we've, and I think that probably started years ago when we all, th once we all three became mothers, it kind of brought a new sense of a new understanding of our natures and our characters and kind of the, the way we were raised. We already started to have these conversations. We're very different mothers than the way we were mothered, mm -hmm. all three of us in, in our own personalities and for our own ways. But so I think that there's been an ongoing layer, layers and layers of communication, deep respect for one another, and allowing each other to shift and change and not typecasting us in the roles that we played when we were kids. So mm -hmm. the good news is that as far as the memoir, the memoir has brought so much, so many, so many conversations between the three of us or in different combinations of it. One of my sister's reads the memoir and feels very validated. She didn't know that I saw 
how she was feeling and receiving her experience. And she did not know how I did as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so to read it as a memoir, even though both of my sisters had read parts of the memoir, to read it cover to cover, she walked away feeling maybe not, you know, having the exact same relationship or even memories that I had, but feeling like she knew me better and feeling like she was validated and seen. That's, that was one sister. The other sister felt quite the opposite, feels quite the opposite. She feels that the experiences of her on the page didn't really like fully tell the relationship that she and I have. And so she felt like it was a little unfair or one noted in terms of like her dynamic, not only with me, but also with my mother, her dynamic with with our mother. And that's been really challenging to hear because it's the last thing that I wanted was for someone to walk away feeling less seen or miss, you know, maybe not misrepresented, but just represented not fully, but also understands that it's my memoir and not hers and that all the nuances that come in with memoir, that it's I'm telling parts of our story, not our whole life things like that. But what it has offered us is some amazing conversations since Mm -hmm. she's read the book, because reading the book was a little triggering for her a lot because my mom is at the end of her life and kind of, I think she's a little bit more sensitive to what kind of legacy does this leave? Those, those questions of what does this say about our mother and are we, does this, are people going to understand how much love there is there, even through these difficult experiences that we all shared. So I think she was a little overprotective of my mom and then of her relationship with my mother. Again, I wasn't telling her story, I was telling mine. But I think the most interesting thing that's come out from our conversations is that, you know, the memoir ends, but our relationship continues. So one of the things that she didn't know is how I felt as a kid. She was just much more cheery. She had a more positive outlook on life. She was more dynamic in her social life. And her coping mechanism is very different than mine. Mm -hmm. I was a little somber, sad, lonely. I internalized a lot as a kid. And I don't think she knew that about me. Hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. that it's giving her a little bit more of a truthful version of who I am. And then that, in fact, is going to change our relationship and what we share. Yeah, I really appreciate that you you looked at that so closely and I think that it's it's a funny it's a funny thing but it is an act of love. I mean, I I I'm not saying throwing people under the bus or finger pointing is what I'm saying is what I'm talking about. I'm saying when you choose to really bring to life as best you can the people whose relationships you had are important to you in growing up, when you bring those vividly onto the page and try to look at them from lots of different angles so that the reader can get a good perspective and a good sense of what was happening and who these people were, that is such an act of, I don't know, it's love, it's generosity, it's it's work to do that. I mean, and I think it's hard maybe for non-writers and non-memoirists to see that. And of course, our own opinions about how we grew up and how we're perceived are 
difficult to reconcile with the way other people see us, right? Yeah. I'm I'm somewhat aware of how my family perceives me and people kind of the jokes they'd make about me, but that wouldn't make them hurt less if they do them, right? Like, right. I you right. know I get it. And then there's other areas where we might have areas where we don't like blind spots where we don't understand how we might come across, and to see that on the page can be difficult. But I think that's the part of your book that's another part I keep saying that's the part of your book I like <laughs> that's the part of your book I like but really when it comes down to family dynamics and the relationships and what is pushing everyone into the behavior you offer such a, a full-bodied portrait of that mm, thank you for saying that I mean a, 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 you know a huge part of my growth since the book has come out is when I was writing this I really did not think my mother would ever read it I thought that she would be, you know, have passed away by then. And uh, maybe in some ways it gave me some freedom to explore how I felt about our relationship on the page in a way that maybe I wouldn't have done had I thought that she would read it. Mm -hmm. But it has been amazing since she has read it. So I spent Mm -hmm. a week with her about a month ago reading while she was reading it and reading it parts of it to her. And we would stop and then have a really long talk. And she was able to express the places where she felt hurt or confused or even just, I mean, she was very gracious. She didn't, she wasn't selfish or anything with it. She was very gracious about the writing, about the storytelling. And even for her, she said, wow, I I have at this stage of my life, at the very end of my life, it's so important for me to understand without the defensiveness that I had had to have as a mother just to like make it through day to day to know what you were experiencing. And it's a blessing to like be given this mm-hmm. at the end, even if it's hard and <laughs> it makes me sad and makes me maybe feel a little bit like, no, but I want you to understand why I did that. Mm-hmm. And we both agreed that it, she could express that to me, but it wasn't necessary. We both kind of got a little like less clenched. We, yeah. I feel like there's more breathing room for us now that we've read this book together. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a gift. I mean, it is a gift. And imagine if she never read it, knowing what you know now about how she received it and the conversations you've had. It can you imagine if you didn't have that opportunity? No. I can't. I'm so grateful for the opportunity, even though it was scary. It was very scary. You know, even as a 53-year-old woman, <laughs> you worry that your mom's going to be mad at you, but so worthy. And, you know, my mom, my mother is a psychotherapist, and she likes to go there. She's never had yeah. a problem kind of digging in and going to the root of things. That's and great. neither have my sisters and I, so we've done a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I know I've definitely kept you on longer than I promised. I have one more juicy-ish question, and then we'll get to the the ending up questions, okay? So my last question that I want you to just reflect on, if you can, is later in the book, you write, not every love story is meant to be a life story. And I think this is such a helpful way to think about romantic love or friends, especially when we're nursing broken hearts. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about this or how you came to embrace this and how it comes up for you now. Yeah, I think the original teaching came to me from my grandmother because I did have a relationship when I was really young and I had moved to Mexico and that's in the book so people can read about that. But when it was time for when I was going through a very difficult time and I kind of 
was at that crossroads of like, do I move back to the United States? Do I leave this dynamic? She said, Mexico and the man you're with is me was meant to be an experience, not a life. And I think that, that that jarred something in me that made me think, oh, really? Like, don't we commit to something and then we just stay with it? Hmm. So it gave me a little bit of a pass. Now, I think she had her own relationship with that. She was loving him and leaving him. So she, but I think that nugget carried with me. And I'm, by the time you reach 50, which is what I was when I was writing the book and kind of thinking these things through, you've been through enough heartbreak and relationships that came and went to understand the value of each relationship, even if it doesn't last. Mm -hmm. I think that the thing that really solidified that for me, that not every love story is meant to be a life story, was my divorce with my son's father and someone who I was married to for almost 20 years, that when we chose to separate, neither one of us had done so much harm to the other one that there was ill will or hatred or even a whole lot of tension. It was challenging. It wasn't easy. But we made the commitment to separate when we did before we hated each other. And in that process, we saw our relationship shift. It was no longer romance. It was no longer love. We were no longer partners in that way. But we were still family and co-parents and our son's mother and father. And we really committed to that, that friendship. We committed to ch changing the way that we related to each other. Okay, we're no longer a love story, but here we are trying to navigate something else. And we still have to be something because we'll always be co-parents. And, um, and I learned a lot through that. Ex I have learned, it's continued, but I have learned a lot through that experience of taking something that is easier to just get mad at and, and hate and push away and have to kind of s just understand that it has a new place. It has mm -hmm. a, new, a new shape. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot through that. And I think we just learn that as we get older now. We learn yeah. that some friendships, like some of my best friends at certain ages in my life, those friendships no longer exist. And that's okay. I still can breathe in and lean into what was and what it gave during that particular time of life, even if it's not going on forever. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a great thing to remember that it, there's value there no matter what, whether it's, you know, ongoing or has ended. Yeah. Thank you. I think I asked that in part for the younger version of myself who probably didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard. It's not easy. It's, it takes a lot more work to, to stay in that place of like, it's okay. And I'm going to still hold light to this relationship. Even if the relationship no longer exists, I'm going to hold light to it in myself, even if that brings along heartbreak and pain, because it's painful mm -hmm. to lose people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you want to leave advice in these last moments? Share some advice with writers working on their memoir? Well, <laughs> I would say that the best form of advice I would have is that when you are going into memoir writing and going into memory, that it's really important to have a whole, cast a whole wide net of support for the process. 
So that could be like therapy, any other spiritual practices and mentors that you can lean on, your friends who are willing to kind of let you lean on them when you're going through difficult times to have your self-care practices in place, to create agreements with the people that you live with about what this, you know, what it might look (laughs) and feel like, kind of what I was saying about what my husband and I went through not knowing just to really set up this whole team because you're going to need, at least from my perspective, I needed it. I, it took, it's kind of, I scrambled my team together as I went and found that I needed, but I would certainly like start off the journey going, okay, I have therapy every other week. Mm -hmm. I've got my twice weekly yoga classes. I've got my friends that I could take walks with all the systems in place Mm -hmm. because you really do need it. Or Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it could be a lot of support to have that. So yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you. And are there memoirs that you want to shout out that have been helpful to you as you wrote this one or when you were thinking about how you wanted to do your book? Well, I do want to shout out, I just finished your memoir, When She Comes Back, and I loved it. There were so many places that I earmarked, underlined, highlighted, sent to friends, took screenshots of. So I, I just, oh I gosh. have to say that you're, Thank you're you. a beautiful writer. Your story is so compelling and it was just, it, I felt like I read it at the right time in my life. So thank mm-hmm. you. I think some of the memoirs that spoke to me, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls mm-hmm. by Takira Madden. I just love that book, everything about it, particularly that kind of picking at the mother-daughter relationship. And I read a book by an author, Rebecca Wolf that's called All of This, that really touched me. I was I read that book while I was writing, so it was very touching and moving to me. Clarity by Diana Estill, like I thought that that book was really important for me to help to kind of piece together what it's like to put mental illness on the page, but not claim it as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the list goes on because yeah, I've been no, reading so many memoirs. But right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll put those in the show notes and a couple of those are new to the show, new Great. to you're the first guest to mention them. So that's I love that, too. Um, and last, last, last before I let you go, because I've kept you on so long. No, I where, love it. <laughs> where can people find you? Well, my website is SherrySidoti.com and most everything is on there, but I'm also on Facebook, Sherry Sidoti, and Instagram at Sherry Sidoti. So any of those places. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you so much for being my guest. And I just love talking with you. Same here. I love talking with you. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I really, it means so much to me. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.